computer and everybody's perfect.
changes hit or miss Every bloody pacifist concedes the truth If one must die to save the 99 Maybe it's justified The left is right Shannon, Serpur, Maitwomet Talk. Uh, hello, I'm Shannon. I come from the traditional York village of Serpur. Um, I'm here today to tell Warren Buffett and send him a message that we're still here and just because it's not in his backyard doesn't mean it won't go to him. We're still fighting the same fire our ancestors have and we still got the same blood running through our veins. I... Hello and uh, welcome to Weekly Review with Roman. Today it's Friday, October 23rd. Thank you so much 
for tuning in. We are broadcasting live from Mutiny Radio. We're in San Francisco, and uh, San Francisco sits on the unceded ancestral homeland of the Ramatouche Ohlone peoples, who are the original inhabitants of the San Francisco Peninsula. And for more information, please check out our webpage at weeklyrev.wordpress.com. There's a land acknowledgement tab at the top, and there you can find links including uh, information about the history, places to donate, action items that folks can take, as well as a list of a thread of uh, native news outlets. And the first, um, well, I played some music to start off as per usual. And uh, the first song we heard was Times They Aren't Changing Fast Enough by Eric Hirschberg. Following that was The Left Is Right by Desparacitos, And then Backlash Blues by Nina Simone. And after that, I uh, heard a clip from some activists out in Omaha, Nebraska, and that was shared by the Red Nation, and you can follow them on Twitter at the underscore red underscore nation, and they say, indigenous peoples don't just want your land acknowledgement, they want your support. Support indigenous rights and the restoration of indigenous foodways by telling Warren Buffett and Pacific Corp that to remove the Klamath dams, and they have more information on their site as well as uh, mobilizing for water justice in California as well. So again, if you follow the Red Nation on Twitter, at the underscore red underscore nation, they have information there for links that folks can follow. We've got quite a show for you uh, coming up today. Around 12.30, we'll be playing a pre-recorded interview with Nicole Mishali, and we'll be talking about an upcoming event tomorrow. And it was a great conversation, and I feel so grateful and thankful that we were able to reconnect. And it's just a... Such a great conversation, so very much looking forward to sharing that with you all around 12.30. And until then, just going to play a few more songs uh, as I get all comfortable here in the studio and set up. And also, we'll be going through a few news stories. And if you're listening to the show for the first time, thanks for tuning in. If you're coming back to listen again, thanks so much for coming back. And the show is, uh, prior to my history of being a comedian, the show doesn't tend to be that funny because we're talking about current events and a lot of really difficult things that are happening in the world. However, do want to provide a, a positive framing on that and that it's based in truth-telling and action items that folks can take, um, whether that means protests that are coming up, uh, truth about certain initiatives that are on the ballot that, I don't know, certain evil companies like Uber and Lyft have lied about, or places that folks can donate or just actual information about what's going on, um, given the fact that oftentimes law enforcement and government forces lie about what's happening. It's super crucial that we know, have an understanding of what people are going through, and that way we can know how to respond. And also, just a reminder, as will be pointed out in the interview as well, people have been organizing for generations, and it's incredibly validating and reassuring to remember that and to honor the work of folks who have come before us. So th there's definitely, like, ugh, there's, there's so much going on, clearly, and I think also living in these times means that so many people have access to social media and sharing, sharing their news and sharing what's going on, and it's also just very much uh, up to the minute, like, very, very recent. So I usually compile, begin to compile stories. Uh, I bookmark stories throughout the week, and then the night before I kind of go through and see. So, of course, this is by no means an exhaustive list, although it sometimes it might feel like that after the show. This is just bits and pieces of what's happening, and my hope is that in the future, looking back on this, it will 
act as a, a time capsule of sorts as these are little, not, I shouldn't say little, these are events that are happening around the world. And it's really important to think about synchronicity and what's happening here as well as in other places. And also with growing up, I've lived most of my life here in the United States, we have a very whitewashed version of history that we're taught in schools. And then also I, I feel like I of often want to talk about Hollywood and the media and the stories that they tell and how there's so much propaganda and militarization in terms of the, the movies that are fed to us and you know myself included. And how, how there's not so much a very nuanced understanding or even truthful understanding of this country's history as well as also the history of people around the world. So it's really crucial to continue to, to learn and to study and to question what we've been taught and also just question behaviors. I think that there's a saying that there's no ethical consumption under capitalism and I believe that there's no ethical behavior under capitalism and it's how, how can one survive if in order to do so one must harm either directly or indirectly somebody else. And there are so many of us who are looking to create new ways of being that means that nobody gets hurt. <sighs> I'm taking a look here at the list of the stories I have, and they're definitely, there's a lot. And I used to provide trigger warnings before the show, and perhaps I should as well, because there's just, there's a lot. And I, it's, it's difficult to start with, and I also just want to create space for that. Um, perhaps I'll start with a few things that are local, and we can uh, move outwards from there. And I also want to provide with what we're talking about is just, I see myself more as a means of a messenger, just sharing what other folks are, are writing about. And it's also the most serious life and death situations that are happening around the world. So I want to, I don't want to rush into anything, and I want to give it the, the time and the language that and respect that everything deserves. So I, I have said in the past that when we have positive news stories on the show, sometimes it's because something bad has pre been prevented from happening or something bad has stopped happening. And initially, uh, you know, if we lived in a just and fair world, then we wouldn't be dealing with the problems that we're dealing with. However, I do want to celebrate victories regardless of how, how they, they are in the you know, in, in the grand scheme of things. So here's an article from Hadara Varam, and you can find this at hadaravaram.com, and that's H-A-D-A-R-A-V-I-R-A-M. Breaking news, California Court of Appeals orders 50% population reduction at San Quentin. Now, I am personally a prison abolitionist. I don't believe prisons help people. And also, there's been a huge spike of uh, COVID-19 infections for folks who are incarcerated. So I am grateful that there are folks who will be released. And this was posted on October 20th, 2020 in California Justice Issues. Um, it says, uh, we agree that respondents, the warden and CDCR have acted with deliberate indifference and relief is warranted. And so the author writes, I am thrilled to provide this update. We won in regarding Von Steich, uh, the habeas corpus case challenging CDCR's mishandling of the COVID-19 crisis at San Quentin, Justice Klein wrote, we agree that respondents, the warden, and CDCR have acted with deliberate indifference and relief is warranted. Here is an analysis of the opinion. Justice Klein begins by stating the magnitude of the San Quentin catastrophe. 
even against the horrific history of disease and contagion in prisons, including three separate spikes of the Spanish flu in 1918, the San Quentin COVID-19 outbreak is the worst epidemiological disaster in California correctional history. He then highlights the physician's urgent memo, and they provide a link in the article, uh, published after they visited San Quentin at the receiver's invitation, recommending a 50% reduction of the prison population. CDCR's response fell far short of this. Between March and August of 2020, they achieved a mere 23% reduction, accomplished in part by suspending intake at San Quentin from county jails, which has increased the presence of COVID-19 in those local facilities and is not likely sustainable. Justice Klein then rejects the evasive maneuvers employed by the AG's office, who tried to play jurisdictional hide-and-seek by claiming that the San Quentin litigation effort was somehow du duplicative of the federal case Plata versus Newsom. First, the court wrote, San Quentin is a particular antiquated prison with specific problems, which are not the focus of the federal litigation. Second, these habeas, corp these habeas cases are designed to ask for temporary relief rather than the more systematic remedies sought in Plata. Third, state courts are not limited and bound by the PLRA as federal courts are. And fourth, which I found inspiring, state courts have the duty and competence to vindicate rights under the California Constitution, which, just like the U.S. Constitution, forbids cruel and unusual punishment, albeit worded slightly differently. The court also rejected the AG's office... AG's office's delay tactics, adding, asking that the case be moved back to the Superior Court and or that an evidentiary hearing be held. As Justice Klein explains, the AG's declarations that the doctors have it wrong and that a 50% reduction is unnecessary were conclusions the Attorney General has failed to support with any factual allegations contradicting petitioners' allegations, which were based on scientists' and physicians' declarations, even with testimony from their own prison physicians. Under these circumstances, the issue before us is simply whether respondents' disregard of the expert's conclusion that a 50% population reduction is essential constitutes the deliberate indifference necessary to sustain petitioners' constitutional claim. The issue is one of law, not fact. And the article goes on a bit longer. There's a few more paragraphs, and if you would like to read it all, you can, again, find it at hadaravaram.com. And we'll also be sharing this link on our website, weeklyrev.com wordpress.com. All right, so I'm going to make a little bit of a segue here and put on a little bit more music and get set up to play the interview with uh, Nicole. So please do stay tuned. <sighs> I'm going to take a deep breath. I guess I had a lot more coffee this morning than I had uh, thought. Going very fast here. So speaking of prisons, uh, here's a song called Prison Song by System of a Down, and we'll be back in a little bit. So please do stay tuned. Thanks for Thanks for tuning in.
and got lucky, came upon the shore, found you were conquering America. You spoke of peace, waged a war, while you were conquering America. weekly review that was tracy chapman with america before that we heard idols with ground and before that system of a down with prison song coming up next is an interview did with uh, nicole mashali yesterday and this will be talking a little bit about this uh, event that's happening tomorrow october 24th generations of consciousness culture and community the salivar family story which is put on by the manila town heritage foundation 
and we'll be providing a link uh, to the Eventbrite. Actually, we already have the Eventbrite link up on our website, nuclearrev.wordpress.com, and a little bit about this. Welcoming the Salover family of San Francisco telling their uniquely multi-generational American story about this event. Middletown Heritage Foundation welcomes the Salover family of San Francisco as they tell their uniquely multi-generational American story. The Salover family history begins in the 1920s at San Francisco's International Hotel and flows through the post-World War II immigration of Filipino war brides settling in San Francisco. The family's greatest contributions to Filipino-American history were efforts by Estrella Salover and her son Patrick in the 1960s when they created social and cultural programs for Filipino-Americans and newly arrived Filipino immigrants. The Salovers have been activists, business owners, community leaders, artists, and performers striving to create better opportunities, promote Filipino identity and self-determination in a city by the bay. The Salover family story is an extraordinary journey of Filipino-American consciousness, culture, and community. Please join host Luna Salover along with Tim Salover, Nicole Michali, and Sherelle Johnson as they share their family's history. Special guests Ronald Kitashe, Daniel Gonzalez, and Robert Illuman will share their experiences with Pat Salover in coordinating the San Francisco State student strikes of 1968 to 1969. Okay, excellent. So coming up is uh, me speaking with Nicole Mashali. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me, Roman. So great to see you again. Yes, it's been a while, and you were on the show um, a few years ago. Yeah, I can't believe it. It seems like yesterday. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so one of the reasons that we're talking today is about an upcoming event called Generations of Consciousness, Culture, and Community, the Salivar Family Story. Yes. Yeah, so I'm uh, looking forward to just to hearing a little bit about that and also um, informing listeners as to how they can uh, tune into that. So first, just wanted to check in and see how you're doing and anything on your mind, and then we can start going through some questions. Yeah, I'm doing great. Again, thank you so much for having me. I think this is like my fifth podcast interview this month. I think with oh, the wow. pandemic, yeah, the pandemic and everyone starting their own podcast uh, this year. I've had so many um, people ask me, oh, will you be on my podcast? So I love that it's like full circle coming back to someone that I love and trust and has been doing uh -huh. the podcast thing for years now. <laughs> uh, thank you. Well, it's an honor to have you back. And yeah, it, just feels, it feels good to reconnect with folks. So yeah, I thought, yeah, we could start like a little bit by talking about um, just the, so the... The event's going to be a little bit about your family history, and I thought we could talk a little bit about that and how your understanding of your family history has evolved over time. Ooh, so I want to just say up front, I actually didn't realize that my I'm so I'm Filipino American, and this month October is Filipino American History Month, or as like my cousin Hamil likes to say, Our Story Month. <laughs> nice. <laughs> um, but I didn't realize growing up, yes, I knew I was Filipino, but I didn't realize that our family was a very unique kind of Filipino-American. Uh, growing up in the Bay Area, there's a lot of Filipinos, like from Daly City down to San Jose up to like Vallejo. Um, and so being around so many Filipinos all my life, I sort of took for granted my mm. unique family history and our legacy. Um, and it wasn't until 
I hit college. You know, I've heard these stories. I knew about who my family was and like the contributions they made to the Bay Area and Filipino American culture and history, but it really didn't hit me until I was in college and I had picked my specific college, San Francisco State University, because of my uncle's involvement and because of his legacy and because he started the very one of the first Filipino clubs in America there. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was like really cool. <laughs> and it wasn't until I was actually taking a class of Filipino American history taught by Dr. Dan Gonzalez. And I was the only one in that class getting straight A's in all the tests. Wow. And all, all the fellow students are looking at me like I'm some kind of weirdo. <laughs> and they're like, how are you acing all of these tests? And I said, well, it's just talking about my family. Like, it's talking about, you know, Larry Itleong, who was an uncle yes. by marriage. Oh, it wow. Was talking, yeah, mm-hmm. Al Robles, who's a good friend of my uh, uncle. You know, it was talking about all these people that I knew through my family, and I knew what they were about, you know. And so it was just like I, I wasn't even getting quizzed. It was just like, do you remember this person and what they did? Yeah. <laughs> And so it it was that, and also, um, you know, before growing up in high school, I never learned Tagalog. Both my parents never spoke it in the house. Mm. They they didn't know it themselves. So growing up as a teenager, um, being around other Filipinos, I was shamed all the time for Mm. not understanding what they were saying, and especially dating other Filipinos and their parents always shaming me for not understanding Tagalog. And there was one time I went up to my mom and I was just like, why didn't you ever teach me? I feel so embarrassed. How can we even be Filipino if we don't speak the language? And my mom had to sit me down and really be like, look, we have a very different kind of Filipino American experience, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and back then in the 50s, when our families were growing up here, we had to assimilate that was a way for us to really survive racism Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. segregation back then. And um, once she told me that, and I understood that, and then she, you know, fleshed out our family history, then I started to become proud of who I was and release that shame of Mm. not, not so much knowing the language, but also understanding that there were three waves of migration for Filipinos. You know, and, and my family was part of that second wave in the 1920s, and the third wave came in the 70s and 80s, and that's where majority of the Filipinos here in the Bay Area came from. I see. Yeah. Wow. Thanks for sharing that. That's a lot of uh, uh, important information. Yeah. Um, I was, you, I was um, let's see, I was curious about, um, so growing up, if we can like maybe start, might as well start there, I was curious about in terms of certainly growing up in America, regardless of, I think, the geographic location, history, putting it mildly. Yes. Um, so I was curious as to a, a, a child, like, how your reaction was to that, like, or understanding of it was as a kid? Well, you know, it's interesting you ask that because just recently and lately I've been thinking about that quote by uh, Winston Churchill, history is written by the victors. Mm-hmm. And that quote keeps coming up this month for me, um, just because so many, and including Filipino Americans, don't know history in the terms of our narrative. Mm-hmm. 
Right. And so many Filipino Americans and I think just immigrants who come to America in general and generally are so colonized to see that white Americans are so much better and that their history is so much more valid than their own. Mm. And I think we often forget all Americans, unless you're first American, indigenous to mm -hmm. America, yes. <laughs> we're all immigrants. Yes, yeah. You know, so why is it that Irish Americans or British Americans or European American story are more important than the Filipino narrative or the Chinese American narrative or the Muslim American or the Arab countries? You know, mm -hmm. why why is it that we hold their stories and their histories to a higher degree, and that's what's taught in American schools, mm -hmm. than, let's say, the indigenous people who are first here and actually help these Europeans, sure. you know, <laughs> uh, live off the land right, right. <laughs> and survive or, the winters. Yeah, or folks who are descendants of people who were enslaved. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And why, why was that for so long being repressed Mm -hmm. or glossed over as like, mm -hmm. oh, well, we, we did these things for these slaves and they were thankful, <laughs> you know? Um, and so much of American history taught in schools growing up and even to this day is written by the European colonizers' mm -hmm. perspective. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's why it's so important that we not only know our own, you know, culture's history here in America, but it's also important that people like my uncle, Pat Saliver, mm -hmm. um, that he aided in the creation of ethnic studies programs in colleges and universities and some high schools, too, all over America. And it's important that we take those classes and not just like a Filipino taking a Filipino-American class, but a Filipino taking a black studies class or a Latinx studies class or a Native American studies class. And I think it's important as an American yeah. to understand that we are all these things. Right, right. Yeah, I thought we could talk a little bit about the, the student strike. Um, and so a little bit about the, um, I guess, the history behind it and the impact that it has, has had. Yeah. Yeah, so the strike was actually the longest student strike led in America, ever. Wow. <laughs> it was from, yeah, 1968, November of 1968 to mm -hmm. March 1969. And when I say strike, it it was sort of resembling, and this is why it's so crazy, like the Black Lives Matter movement, and to this day, how police um, will come with tear gas mm -hmm. and batons and literally beat folks in the street for just assembling. And mm -hmm. that's what it was like in the 60s. Mm -hmm. And just recently, um, I'm starting to do um, an artistic piece around my family history called um, Crocodiles lesson of survival and mm. I went through the archives and you can even see this on YouTube if you mm. YouTube SF state student strike and there is video of the police beating students of all ethnicities <sighs> black Asian white mm -hmm. and interviews of even just white allies saying this is what happened to me when we were in the jail the police mm. started to hose us mm. you know and we were just there in jail you know and the brutality still happens today. Yeah. Right? So it just boggles my mind that a lot has changed, but a lot hasn't changed yeah. in 50 years. Right, right. It's, 
I, I find I run out of words sometimes just how disgusting the behavior is and the fact that it's still so like clear and obvious and there are still people who defend it and that yeah. just defend the violence and it just it's yeah I don't and, have the words for it and the only difference now is we all have video cameras right right whereas before it was only the news channels mm-hmm. you know that would come on days you know if they came at all right but to right. see that footage like I highly suggest people google SF st- student strike um 1969 because you'll see that footage and you'll be like appalled, but also like, wow, this is exactly what's going on today. Mm-hmm. And so this student strike actually resulted in the expansion of college access for people of color. Because mm. before it was like capped at a maximum. Could mm. you imagine? Like this college can only have X amount of black students. Yeah, I or remember. Or X amount of Asian students. Yeah, I remember like hearing about like a certain number of like Jewish students back like in the 50s, for instance, as well. Yeah. So, Yeah. It's crazy to think that now, but that's how it was back then. And they had to literally fight for, you know, X amount of months for their access to education. Yeah. And then it also created the first and only College of Ethnic Studies at the time, Mm -hmm. which was at SF State. And that um, Ethnic Studies College had um, African American Studies and Native American Studies and Asian American Studies. Um, and that sort of was the start of ethnic studies programs all over the U.S. And now, currently, today, there are 700 ethnic studies programs in the U.S. Wow. That's so yeah. incredible. And it's also really inspiring, too. I know that word gets thrown around a lot, but it is so inspiring to recognize that, especially with young people, like the actions taken today can have just tremendous impact on uh, future generations. A hundred percent. And it also goes back to something. When I first started dating my husband, he was really, I went to a protest and he was really worried for me. And one of his things that he said was, why are you going to protest? It's not going to solve anything. And I was so taken aback. (laughs) And I really had to like hold my tongue, but also help him understand that I come from a family of activists. Mm -hmm. And one of the biggest things from that protest and strike was the expansion of college access and the ethnic studies program. So I am like living proof yes. that yes, protests do work. Yes. You know, and the voice of the people and the voice of those who are marginalized and oppressed when they understand their power in this collective has tremendous impact. Mm-hmm. and can change things. I think that's what happens with colonizers as they teach people of color that they can't change. You're not mm-hmm. enough. You can't do this. But mm-hmm. when we get together in solidarity, mm-hmm. we can show and prove that we can change things mm-hmm. no matter what they say. And I think that's what happens when we start to decolonize our minds, to take our power back from colonizers and say, hey, no, You've told my ancestors, you told me, even my parents, that they couldn't do anything if we protest or, sh- or you know, spoke our minds. But we are living proof that we're breaking that generational curse. We're mm-hmm. breaking that generational trauma that you imposed on our parents, our grandparents, our great-great-great-great-grandparents. And we're breaking that and we choose to step into our power and we choose to step up and say what's right for us. <sighs> well said. <laughs> It is 
I feel like there's something with protests too, just the um, also like just the energy that one can feel that's sometimes oh, hard 100. to describe. Like I haven't been I, I haven't been to one for a while, and then I was at one last I, it's hard to keep track of time these days, but is that one maybe last week for No on Prop 22? And there are yeah. hundreds of people have gathered out, out front of Uber, and it was just this, I think it's a reminder also that you're not alone, because I feel like yes. some of the frustration and the anger and the sadness and all these feelings that come up recognizing this systemic injustice can feel yeah. debilitating at times. And then when you can look or see or hear other people all around you, it's a reminder that we're, it, we are in this, like literally we're in this together, and there are so many folks who will have your back? A hundred percent. I will say the last protest I was at was a Black Lives Matter protest. And I just, we just happened to be in San Diego because of my husband's birthday. And we were like, we need to go to a protest. <laughs> we need to go protest right now. And we just happened to be in San Diego. I will say uh, the area we were, were was mostly affluent white folks. <laughs> mm -hmm. But honestly, it felt really good to see the mix of um, Mexican POC and also white, white allies mm -hmm. with signs that understood their um, privilege. Yes. Right. Yes. And we're calling other white folks out and colonizers out for their ignorance and their miseducation. And that to me, like you said earlier, you feel that energy, you, you feel like you're not alone and you feel solidarity. And you also, it opened my eyes. Cause I think before that I was like, you know, in quite all honesty, I was like, fuck white folks, <laughs> like, you know, like I'm really sick of this, like, oh, it's not, it's not affecting us, but seeing that and seeing so many white allies and then also looking back at the footage from the 1968 student strikes and seeing so many other white allies putting their bodies on the line, going to jail, being brutally assaulted by the police. That to me sort of opened my eyes that like solidarity includes our white allies, includes our, our you know, those who are ancestors of our colonizers who are now more conscious enough to understand you know, let me put my white uh, fragility aside and mm -hmm. help those that have not been treated equally. Mm -hmm. So I think it's important too to also um, see that. Yes. Yeah. <sighs> but there's also a quote that I just found recently that my uncle Pat said back in the 60s that mm -hmm. um, I think also relates to this. And one of the reasons why he started the first Filipino collegiate in the 60s was to educate Filipinos to the contradictions and hypocrisies of American society, to gain control of the political, social, and economic bodies now controlling our lives, mm. and to present ourselves as a community. And I think that goes beyond Filipinos. I think that's all marginalized peoples, mm -hmm. that we can see the contradictions, yes. but now we have the power to gain that control back. And look at all the folks now um, in politics, AOC, you know? Mm -hmm. like, yeah, yeah. She gives me hope. <laughs> yeah, same, same. It does feel good to know that there are elected officials who actually do want to represent the people, as it should yes. be. Yes, exactly. We should protect her at all costs. <laughs> yes. yes, her and Ilan Omar. Exactly, the whole squad. Probably... Yes, absolutely. And Cori Bush as well. Um, let's see. 
I was I was curious in terms of you mentioned that your family there's a you know, family of activists and I was curious about other you know for whatever you, you feel comfortable with, uh, discussing was there any resistance from other family or community members in regards to your family's activism? Oh, of course, of course, <laughs> and I will say, decolonization work is everyone's work. Yes, right. I think that's a personal journey that everyone gets to go through. And everyone is in their own stage of it. Some haven't even started. And I will say from personal experience, there's a lot of Filipino Americans that haven't even started. Mm -hmm. That even refuse, like violently refuse mm -hmm. to decolonize mm -hmm. because they'd rather stay in their comfort. They'd rather stay in their model minority myth box and, you know, sure. say, yes, master, whatever you want, master you know, mm -hmm. rather than think for themselves or, or do um, what's right, they'd rather be complacent than, like my uncle said, be a channel for change. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of like my uh, own journey, journey of finding grace for those people. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and also understand that decolonization might not be for everyone in my family. And mm -hmm. they're having comments even from close aunts and uncles like oh I've never experienced racism you know and sort of like diminishing the fact that other Filipinos have mm -hmm. you know um and there also has been resistance I I remember my uncle actually went to federal prison because of his work with mm -hmm. third world liberation front mm -hmm. and during his court case one of my family members even testified against him Ugh. And I won't say who, mm -hmm. <laughs> because it's a public podcast, yeah. but it broke my mother's heart yes. when that person didn't stand up for my uncle, mm -hmm. um, and it sort of created a crack within the family dynamic, and I think when my uncle went to prison, that sort of like created huge trauma in my family, oh, yes. um, and he went, to, he went to federal prison for, I think, at least a year, but... Um, the FBI had a folder really thick of his work with a third world liberation front. And they saw him as like enemy of the state and, you know, Panthers and all this activism thing is against America. Right. Which really was just against white America and white supremacy. Mm -hmm. And it was threatening them. And yeah. so they put him in prison as an example to show other activists, look, if you continue down this road of, of activism and equality for all, you're going to prison just like him. Mm. And so it did actually break my uncle and it mm. broke a lot of the family bonds. And I will say it, it was hard for my family, but it, you know, his legacy lives on and I hope he's passed on. Um, last year he passed away, but I hope mm. he's proud of what he's done. And he's proud of what my family is doing now to sort of um, relay this message and inspire others. Yes. Yeah, clearly his his life and his work is still very much alive. Exactly. Yeah. Oh. Just taking a, a, a breath here. Yeah, um, it's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot. It's a lot. I think it's also, I mean, I think what we're talking about is just very, uh, I don't want to use the word heavy, but just very, there's a lot to it. Or it has a very strong feeling, just like the, the actions as well as the fact that it also is your family. I mean, I feel like that 
both of those, like even separately, can be a lot. And then when you combine it all together, it's it's a lot to hold. Yeah, and I will say it really wasn't until this year in 2020 with everything happening in the world and me taking the time to interview fam certain family members and my other uncle, and this is, okay, he might hate me for saying this on the podcast, but so um, one of my uncles is a Republican and a Trump supporter and he came and he like called me one day furious about me supporting Black Lives Matter, like furious. <laughs> Ugh. And going on and on and on about, you know, how yeah. the Democrats are horrible people, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, look, if we can't even have a civil conversation, if you're just going to come in with your judgments and mm -hmm. not even try to listen to me, yeah. then I can't talk to you. Yeah. And I called him a bigot. Yeah. And he was like, I'm not a bigot. I'm educated and I went to university and I have a degree in this and this and this. I was like, look, you can have a billion degrees and have a PhD in a million different, you know, um, areas of study, but you could still be a bigot. Yes, yes. That doesn't excuse your behavior and um, your the way you're coming at me. <laughs> We're family. Yeah. Like, it's really disheartening to know that we have opposite opinions, but you're coming at me like I'm some kind of enemy. <laughs> you know, and and that actually me calling him out like that actually mm -hmm. spurred this um, work of him researching my family mm. history. Ah. And I told him, he was like, well, how are you helping the world? You know, what are you doing? And I was like, I'm empowering other POC. You know, like, I'm helping people decolonize. I was like, what are you doing? Yes. And then that actually, I think, spurred, sparked something in him. Mm -hmm. And he saw the work that his older brother did. Mm -hmm. And now he's all about, like, this movement of sharing the information about wow. my uncle. That, which is great. Which is great. I'm, gr I'm gr One thing that has come good from Trump is my uncle is now championing, championing this movement of spreading awareness about my uncle Pat, who... You know, in previous years, the only people that I knew about him were students at SF State or maybe that took Asian American history classes mm -hmm. and learned about him through that. But a lot of Filipino Americans still don't know who he is or still don't know the um, Third World Liberation Front or mm -hmm. student strike or even the importance of ethnic studies. So, you know, I say all that <laughs> and say I appreciate people who are now taking the time to unlearn what they learn and yes. dig it a little deeper and analyze, yes. Yes. you know, what is really going on. And yeah. now he's like, I mean, he's not fully woke, but I will say he's a lot more woke than he was before that conversation. He had. Yeah. I mean, there is so much to unlearn. I mean, there's, there's so much propaganda, like whether it's through, through school, through media, through politicians, that so, so many of us, like myself included, definitely, every day it's another day to evolve, to question what I've heard, to question behaviors, to question images that I've seen growing up, and to really just try to have an understanding of where do these things come from, and when I have certain feelings, I'm like, where, where is this feeling coming from? Like, what yeah. is at the root of this? Yeah, and also, what generational curses do I get to break yes. by unlearning this? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you want to talk a little bit more about that? 
Oh, I'd love to. I think this theme has been also coming up not only in my journey of decolonization, and I want to give a shout out to my good friend, J.L. Umipig and the Center of Abaiwan Studies, because they hold a lot of workshops within the Filipino community around decolonization and the importance of it. Mm -hmm. And it's open to all ethnicities, not just Filipinos. Um, and I started taking workshops and classes through them with this in mind of breaking these generational curses and this generational conditioning that we can only be one thing. Mm. Um, I think especially being a woman of color, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, and we were colonized by the Spanish. And so they brought over Catholicism and Catholicism did a number on our peoples. <laughs> Look, I love Jesus as much as the next person in, in Filipino culture, but I will say the Spanish and the way they controlled and colonized our people and weaponized the Bible and weaponized religion did mm -hmm. horrible things to us. They mm -hmm. enslaved us. They killed our female shamans, which are mm. called the bylaws, and they fed them to crocodiles. Like, that's how <sighs> horrible <laughs> this shit is, right? And they forced indigenous people of the Philippines to become Catholic. It wasn't a choice. They were forced in order to continue to live. And I think what happens is that we start to take on our colonizers' mindset of what's possible and who we have to be. Mm -hmm. And I think um, one of the quotes that I learned from my uncle, another really important quote that I learned was, um, the importance of the Third World Liberation Front mm -hmm. was that they wanted to create a new humanity mm. through a new world consciousness within the context of collectively controlling our own destinies mm. and releasing all this conditioning and mm -hmm. trauma that our colonizers have given us, whether that's Spain or Britain or France or mm -hmm. Portugal or any kind, or even um, some China. You know, it's not just European countries, but mm -hmm. colonizers, what they do is they come in, they take over, a, you know, a country, they rape, they, you know, take over the land, and then they enslave, mm -hmm. they perform genocide. Mm -hmm. And even America has done that in the Philippines. Oh, yeah. And I've, yeah. And I've gotten in heated debates with certain family members who refuse to even acknowledge that America did that to the Philippines. No, America saved us from the Japanese. Yes, they might have. But before that, a hundred years before that, yeah. they enslaved us, mm -hmm. and they also committed acts of genocide against the Philippines. I look it up. <laughs> it's even on the American government websites. So, like, to understand. And that says something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. To understand that, and also understand that there are generations of ancestral trauma that have happened because of those rapes because of the enslavement, because of the conditioning of the colonizers, that we now in this new generation of Filipino Americans or just POC, we get to, and it's a get to, not should, or we have to, but we get to break that cycle. Mm -hmm. And I was in deep session with JL Mipig once, and I got a message from one of my ancestors, my grandma actually, who passed away in 2017, and she said, once you heal yourself, and once you can forgive and heal that trauma within you, that essentially is healing all the trauma mm. through the ancestral line, through your DNA, 
through the spiritual ancestral line. So once you do that work to heal yourself and heal like whatever issues you have with your father or whatever, <laughs> that is healing me. That's healing my great grandmother. Mm. That's healing my great, your great, 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 great grandmother and through the line. And so I think that's, what's important to also understand about generational trauma and generational curses that you can be that person in your family mm. to break it. Even if your mom hasn't, even if your grandma hasn't, even if your aunt or sisters or uncle hasn't, you can be that person where it stops and you can now lead a better legacy and a more healthier spiritual and mental uh, lifeline to yourself. Um, and I see that now in like shows like Lovecraft Country and HBO's Watchmen. And I think it's really oh, yes. important. Yeah, that people of color are now sharing their narratives in the entertainment world mm -hmm. because they're showing us through entertainment. And it's a little bit easier to digest, you know, than, <laughs> than me lecturing people. But it's it's important for POC to watch things like that because then it's like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And I see the parallels now and the patterns now in my family. And even me, like, going more into my healing work and the work I do with manifestation, mm -hmm. I've been reading letters this past month from my grandmother, and she herself was doing what I was do what I'm doing mm. now. And she wrote to the family a long time ago in the early '90s about how law of attraction we attract everything, whether it's good or bad, into our lives. And mm. she taught that, and I wasn't aware of it until literally this month. But now I see like that parallel pattern and legacy. And how that not only generational trauma, but also just generational wisdom can be passed mm. down. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's very impactful. <sighs> I was hoping we could maybe talk a little bit about the, the Third World Liberation Front, for those of us who are less familiar with it. Yeah. Uh, what do you want to know? <laughs> oh, I'm just curious about, like, um, I've like heard about it a little bit, but I'm just curious to hear more about the, the creation of it and, um, yeah, anything you'd like to share about it. So from my understanding, and I want to actually um, go to something that was just shared with me, mm -hmm. um, the Third Liberation Front was a collection of student organizations at SF State, and that included the Black Student Union, so BSU, the Mexican American Student Confederation, the Latin American Student Organization, the Intercollegiate Chinese for Social Action, and the Asian American Political Alliance. And mm. they formed the Third World Liberation Front. And so their whole uh, agenda was to help those who came from countries that were colonized. Mm -hmm. And like I said earlier, to show a new humanism, a new world consciousness within their, within the solidarity of all these different college groups. And I think that's really important to note, especially during this time of Black Lives Matter, to see that there was solidarity back then mm -hmm. between all different types of ethnic college groups. You know, I think um, sometimes, I, I'm just going to speak on my culture, but sometimes I've been hearing this feedback that Filipino Americans are anti-black. And I want to say, no, not all Filipinos are anti, not all Asians are anti-black. My family is not anti-black. Mm -hmm. You know, I think it all depends on 
um, when you came to America and what your American experience has been, right? Mm -hmm. And I will just say from my experience, I feel way more safe and comfortable in African-American communities than mm -hmm. I do in Caucasian communities. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, and that's the Third World Liberation Front started off also um, in helping organize the student strikes mm -hmm. and being like this solid front and organizing in my uncle's basement <laughs> and having meetings. And this is why the FBI was like tailing him and, mm -hmm. you know, tapping their phones because they were meeting in my family's basement and organizing. It's very grassroots. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, cool. So following up, just looking at another um, I was curious as to, we've talked a little bit about this, but I was curious as to um, how has knowing your family's history helped inform your working life and your outlook and your hopes for the future? So like I said, um, I knew I would say 75% of this, but I think what really hit home for me was the last 25%. And not only to see my uncle's impact, but now also seeing a lot of the documents from my own grandmother mm -hmm. and seeing um, things like she helped sign a bill in California in the 70s to help other doctors from other countries practice here in California without having to retake medical school. Mm. And seeing that bill signed by senators and House representatives and then knowing that my grandma wrote this bill <laughs> was, like, shocking to me, you know. And then also seeing a document where she was recognized by the Philippine government for helping organize resistance groups against the Japanese occupation mm. in the Philippines in the 1920s. And that she did that as, like, a college student was crazy to me <laughs> so understanding my family's history in its entirety now it's like wow but I think we get to when we see something like that as an individual we get to either choose our perspective right I could have chosen to be like oh shit that's crazy and I'm never gonna amount to something amazing like that or I can choose to see it as inspiration mm -hmm. yes yes and I choose to see that as inspiration. And so currently what I do is I incorporate that in all areas of my life, mm -hmm. you know, by one, choosing to teach self-empowerment workshops and mm -hmm. courses to people of color. You know, before, four years ago, when I first started teaching my course, which you took, um, I thought, you know, I, I wanted to have it be open for everyone. And I don't want anyone to feel, you know, not included and, now in my journey of decolonization, I'm like, no, I really want to just cater to people of color. And allies are welcome, but they also should know if they have white fragility, they got to like, work on that on mm -hmm. their own time. Yes, yes. <laughs> right? Like, come, but this is really going to be about decolonizing yourself, too, mm -hmm. <laughs> with, with manifestation and law of attraction. Yeah. Um, and then also writing films. TV shows, um, entertainment pieces with 
people of color as leads mm -hmm. and with people of color narratives. Yes. And I think Jordan Peele said this a couple of years ago, like he will never cast a white person <laughs> as a lead and he got so much flack for it in Hollywood. And <sighs> I agree with him. I, I'm like, yes, I get that because for the longest time, did anyone give uh, flack to Hollywood for only casting white leads? Mm -hmm. For only having white people on the covers of magazines? Mm -hmm. No. No one said anything. <laughs> yeah. That was just expected. Right. As well as telling the story, like writing the stories and... Exactly. Writing yeah. the story. Like the help. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Can we have POC stories written by POC? <laughs> you would think it's not that... Ask, it's like not asking for much at all. It's like this is like the bare minimum, yet it's yeah. still just, oh, yeah. So it's still something we are overcoming, let's say, <laughs> in Hollywood. Yeah. Um, and I just feel like my whole work as a spirit in human form is to show that solidarity and true equality is having all people of color stories told, mm -hmm. seen, and valid as just as important as European colonizers. Yeah. Right? And that we more. take our power back. We yes. take our power back. Yeah. I think so much of it is about the narrative. It is like what we were, you were mentioning earlier on, like who gets to tell the stories and what stories are those? And that just ends up continuing on with the lies of the oppressors. Exactly. We need to own our narratives. We get to tell our narratives. We get to be our narratives. And part of that is unlearning, decolonizing, and taking it back mm -hmm. from the oppressors. Hell yeah. Um, yeah. So um, I also wanted just to mention that your the manifestation courses that you've taught are so fucking rad. And <laughs> Thank you. I want to encourage folks to, to sign up for them if they're interested. And is there a, a website or a place they can find more information about those? Yeah, so I'm starting a new session this is perfect timing, completely in alignment. Spirit's like, yes. <laughs> um, the next session is November 14th. Okay. And I have a current discount of 50% off the registration fee for the next 15 uh, sets. And they find that on my Instagram through my bio or through manifestingmagic.vip. Great. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, so so good. Such a good course. Um, I also wanted to talk a little bit more about the the um, event tomorrow, and we've. But I was curious if anything else inspired you all to put this teaching together, since it is it'll be you and your mother and a few other folks who are participating in it. So I was just curious as to what the what the um, process was like for you all to come together to decide to do this. Well, like I said, I think it all started with <laughs> uh, my uncle doing the research on our family. Yes, yeah. And he went, like, full force. He was going telephone books from the 50s and, like, interviewing people that went to college with my uncle, um, going through different records. Um, and so he found a lot of information, like I said, like, we didn't even know. So mm. he put all this information in a website, which is mm -hmm. patsaliver.com. Mm -hmm. So if people want to uh, look at that information and really know my family's story in depth, they can go there, patsaliver.com. 
Um, and then after that, him and my uncle Pat's daughter, which is my cousin Sherelle, started writing articles for different Asian American blogs. Mm-hmm. And the importance of knowing who Pat Taliber is and his civil rights activism work. And then from there, I believe Manila Town, since we are all from originally San Francisco, reached mm-hmm. out to, I think, either my uncle or Sherelle, my cousin, and wanted us to be part of their Philippine-American History Month celebration. Um, but I think also, in many ways, unfortunately, my uncle had to pass away for this to start mm. becoming a movement, a thing, because for a long time, you know, after he got out of prison, he just wanted to put the past behind him. Mm-hmm. And he didn't really want to talk about it publicly. Sure. Um, I think, I'm sure there was some kind of a little bit of shame or just like, I just don't want to deal with that. There's trauma, definitely yeah. trauma yeah. from going to prison for his work, mm-hmm. his sacrifice. And I think that's why I think it's even more important for folks to learn about my uncle because he sacrificed. Mm-hmm. All the other people who were part of the student strikes, one, you know, ended up being a judge. <laughs> Another, mm. you know, became a professor at San Francisco State with tenure. And my uncle went to prison. He was the only one. And mm. so I think for him, it was traumatic. Yeah. For a really long time. And he didn't like to talk about it. And, you know, even uh, Pace, the organization he started, they wanted to honor him. And he just didn't want to go. Because he himself was dealing with emotional mental trauma from it. And so I think it really wasn't until his death last year when we felt we can actually talk about it openly and publicly about his life and his legacy to honor him in an act of honoring him and inspiring generations to come. And I also, I will say this, he did visit my gra- my mom in a dream, and he was like, you better get this right. Uh. <laughs> Don't F this up. Mm. <laughs> so I see that as sort of a blessing <laughs> from him. Like, you can do this, but just make yeah. sure you get it right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I think what something that's really lovely about it is that so many different people are involved with it, so everyone can add what they know and their own abilities to just create this event exactly yeah yeah i was curious if you might have any um tips for folks who might be interested in sharing their family histories as well for something along the lines of this yeah i think that's super important not just for filipino americans but everyone you Mm -hmm. don't even have to be american (laughs) like i think it's really important to share our family histories our oral stories Mm -hmm. and i think that in turn helps to heal our generational trauma, our generational curses mm-hmm. and things that have been passed down over and over again, whether that's, you know, um, alcoholism <laughs> or, you know, things, um, conditioning and mindset given to us by the oppressors, right? So I would suggest interviews. Mm-hmm. The beautiful thing about Zoom now, and I've been using Zoom for this, Mm-hmm. is I will set up a time with a family member and I will just interview them on Zoom mm. and now it's recorded. Nice. And I love this because I did this with my uncle even before Zoom. Mm-hmm. I would go, whenever I went to go visit him, I would take my video camera, this was before smartphones, <laughs> mm-hmm. and I would just record us talking and me asking him questions. Um, 
And sometimes we would smoke a little cannabis. <laughs> he had a medicinal card at the time. Mm-hmm. And um, sometimes it would just be us talking about life. Yeah. And I think that's enriching not only um, the person you're interviewing because it's giving them validity to their stories and their life, but also for you because you mm-hmm. get to learn a different perspective. Yes. Right. And that opens you up so much more to then what you just see on social media or what you see on the news or what mm-hmm. you are, you know, um, given by oppressor. Yes. You're you're starting to see your own family legacy and perspectives. And I think that's so important. So now I'm like trying to set up time to interview everyone, even my little cousins, mm-hmm. you know, because I think that's a beautiful like time capsule of like where they are right yes. now in 2020 during a global pandemic and civil unrest. <laughs> right. Um, so that, and I would say research, mm-hmm. take the time to do research and not just re- interviews, but like paper analog research, mm-hmm. whether that's going to a library <laughs> or going through phone books, like my uncle did and seeing these documents, he was able to find all these documents of when my grandfather in 1927 mm. first naturalized and became a citizen and came here wow. to America in Seattle. And what was crazy when I found out a month, both my grandfathers came to Seattle in 1927, a month apart, and they're from huh. the same island in the Philippines. And there are 7,000 islands wow. in the Philippines. Wow. <laughs> or some crazy number, 3,000, I don't know, thousands of islands in yeah. the Philippines. And out of all of them, they came from the same one. And I don't even know if they knew each other. But it was just a crazy, and I don't believe in coincidence, like synchronicity that they both came that same year, the Mm. same city, and they both settled in San Francisco. Mm. So like research, research. Yeah. Yeah. And then sharing, I would just say share with your own families. Because I think what happens is things get lost and we as a family – cohesive family unit family tribe we actually don't know Mm -hmm. about each other a lot yeah and i think storytelling is so important as a just to gain i think empathy as well just for for folks so and i will i will say that too like (laughs) my mother and i have a great relationship but it really wasn't until this year when i interviewed her about her childhood that Mm. i start to have a more um, kinder and understanding mm-hmm. view of what she's been through and the sacrifices she's done to give me a better life. Mm-hmm. And now I can empathize with her. And instead of going into like this perception of why is she saying it like that? Or, you mm-hmm. know, getting triggered yeah. negatively, I can now kind of like love her unconditionally and be like, okay, she's reacting in a way that's triggering her own past trauma mm. you know which has helped me in my relationship with her and just uh mm-hmm. communicating with her in a healthy way yes yes yeah so it's another way to bring people together exactly despite our differences of, of opinion <laughs> sure i'll just say that <laughs> yeah Great. Um, so these were most of the questions that I um, had prepared. Is there anything else you wanted to discuss or talk about? I think I covered 
Oh my. There's a lot. Yeah, there's a lot there. Yeah. I, but I just, I honestly want to thank you, Roman, because I know you've been doing this podcast for years, and I know you've been doing the good work of, like, keeping folks accountable and conscious within their own communities and inspiring others to do that journey of decolonization. So really, really, it's such an honor to be back here on your podcast and to be a part of this movement that you have, that you've built. And I just thank you for that. And, you know, I, I am so honored to be a friend of yours and such a big heart that you have in um, giving yourself for this community and for this new world consciousness that we are hoping (laughs) to bring into this earth. And I honestly, I mean, the last thing I'm going to say is it is possible. And I know that people get like disheartened or get hopeless. And I was there last week. Right. Um, But just know that you're not alone. And I'm saying this to you and everyone that's listening, that you're not alone and change is coming. And the only reason why people like Donald Trump are in power is because the old white man oppressors are doing their final last like fight mm-hmm. before this new hope and new world. We are the rebels in Star Wars, right? Like, <laughs> just know, I see it. I see it. It's coming. So don't give up hope. Don't feel like the world is just going to burn to the ground come November. <laughs> And and see that like honestly, some things need to burn, and mm-hmm. and just like diminish in order for a new world to be born. Like all of this crap is gonna be gone, and maybe maybe not in our lifetime, but our children's lifetime, they will see the full manifestation of what we're working towards, where racism is gone and eradicated, where you know equality is for everyone, you know. Um, all the genders, <laughs> non-binary yeah. included, yeah. Yeah. you know, and, um, like, there's going to be more love and peace on this world. Mm-hmm. I just don't want people to, like, lose hope and think it's not possible because it is. Um, and I see it. So I think I'll just end on that. That is beautiful, and I have tears in my eyes. Oh, thank you so much, Nicole. It was really great to talk with you and to connect and I'm looking forward to just connecting more as, as time goes on and I'm, ah, ah. yeah so um, a reminder for, for folks listening out here that the event is happening t- um, Saturday October Saturday. 24th and on Eventbrite and I will be sharing the link on our webpage as well so providing a place for folks to register so thanks again so much to you and your family I'm just everyone I've met in your family has been so lovely like your mother and Camille and you and just uh, I appreciate you so much so thank you thank you Roman we appreciate you um, okay. well, take care okay bye bye all right big thanks to Nicole Mashali and uh, the Link to the website that has the Eventbrite is on our page, weeklyrev.wordpress.com. And again, this is Generations of Consciousness, Culture, and Community, the Salibur Family Story. It's happening tomorrow, Saturday, October 24th from 6 p.m. to 7.30 p.m. Pacific Pacific time. And again, there's a link to it on our 
webpage. And I'm going to play a bit of a music break, and then we'll finish up the show with some uh, more news stories. So please do stay tuned. Welcome back. That was Chumbawamba with more whitewashing. And I know Chumbawamba was kind of often known in 
a lot of places as this one-hit wonder. However, there's a pretty awesome anarchist band, and they have a lot of uh, great music out there. I'm going to get to some more news stories here, and I'm um, going to play a, a clip right now. And this is um, a driver explaining why he's not falling for the corporate campaign lies and voting. He's voting no on 22. sending messages to um, the passengers and telling the passengers to vote yes on 22 that it's making it best for the drivers. I have passengers get in the car all the time and tell me, oh yes, I'm voting yes on 22 for y'all. I tell them no. We vote no. they like, oh, you don't want yes? No. Uber won't yes. I say, we vote no. It's making it best for us. they like, well, 22 is kind of hard to understand, but Uber telling everybody to vote yes. I said, that's what Uber wants. Uber spent $190 million trying to convince everybody to vote yes, but we want everybody to vote no. And they're trying to get the understanding of yes and no. A lot of them still don't know what yes and no mean. They still think, oh, we got to vote yes. No is no. No they, is no. Yeah, they think, oh, if we vote yes, if we vote yes, ride share stay. Or if we vote no, ride share go leave. And I tell them, no, it's not. I said, first of all, California is Uber moneymaker. They ain't going to leave California at all. That's right. All right, so this was a video that was posted on Twitter by Gig Workers Rising. You can follow them on Twitter at Gig Workers Rise. And also, for more information on Prop 22, you can listen to last week's episode, as well as the one from three weeks ago, I believe. Uh, we had folks call in um, who are all voting no on Prop 22 and explaining why there's a lot of reasons to vote no on Prop 22, and there's a lot of misinformation out there by Uber and Lyft. So, again, please, if you're in California, vote no on Prop 22. I also will be posting there's a lot of links to different voter guides for folks who are voting and haven't voted yet uh, especially in california and the bay area there are a lot of resources out there also plugging uh plug for to vote for jackie fielder who's, who was gets on the show um a few months ago three it was back before shelter in place so this was a while ago but um yeah definitely vote for jackie fielder and there's a lot of other voter guides so we'll be including that on our website as well Oh, right. So there's a lot to get to, and I'm going to go through. Uh, I'm going to go through what I can, starting here. Okay. This is activists build facial recognition to ID cops who hide their badges. This is from futurism.com. And again, we'll be posting these stories as well on weeklyrev.wordpress.com, weekly so you can follow along at home. And also, a lot of these articles have links. So it's a good place to, to, to find these, these articles. Okay. Um, in order to hold police accountable, oh, and this is also written by Dan Robitsky on October 21st. In order to hold police accountable when they try to hide their identities, a growing number of activists are developing facial recognition tools that identify cops. The New York Times reports a striking inversion of the ways cops tend to use facial recognition on protesters and suspects. It's a satisfying role reversal. Police are hiding their identities while cracking down on protests. In other words, just to be outed by the same invasive technology that they use to surveil the populace. One of the projects was a shower thought for self-taught programmer Christopher Howell. He's identifying cops in Portland, Oregon, because they were permitted to cover their names while responding to protests. Portland banned facial recognition for cops and companies, but the New York Times reports that Howell's project is permitted because he's an individual working on a passion project. There's a lot of excessive force here in Portland, Howell told the New York Times. Knowing who the officers are seems like a baseline. Building these tools has become simple, the New York Times reports, due to increasingly common off-the-shelf software. 
The real challenge, activists say, is finding enough images of local police to train the algorithm. They've had luck on social media, they told the newspaper. For a while now, everyone was aware that big guys could use this to identify and oppress the little guys. But now we're approaching the technological threshold where the little guys can do it to the big guys. Andrew Maximov, a developer working on a similar project, told the New York Times, it's not just the loss of anonymity, it's the threat of infamy. And they have more in a link to the article uh, from the New York Times. And again, you can find this at futurism.com. Next up is a article that's behind a paywall from the New York Times Magazine. And uh, I was looking to share the... It's about, uh, in Minneapolis, there are uh, tenants who evicted their landlord. So I would like to learn more about that. So um, perhaps you can find that. Next up, and I'm going in no order, just the order of the tabs on the top of my computer. Here we go. Next up is an event happening in November, November 5th, Whose Security Is It Anyway? by Project NIA. You can find this on Eventbrite, and we'll also provide a link on our website. Building Your Abolitionist Toolbox, Whose Security Is It Anyway? with Laura Brooks and Miriam Kaba. And uh, read a little bit about this event. Join veteran youth workers, advocates, and co-strugglers Laura Brooks and Mariam Kaba for a presentation on their toolkit, Whose Security Is It Anyway? This resource explores a neglected area of focus in the marginalization and criminalization of young people, the nonprofit industrial complex, heightened racialized surveillance, and increasing state violence, particularly against BIPOC individuals, has also led to increased collusion and reliance on law enforcement within these spaces. Young people in institutions like schools, clinics, and hospitals Homeless shelters, faith-based settings, homeless drop-in and outreach programs, and recreational facilities are finding highly controlled spaces that are quick to punish and expel them. In collaboration with youth workers from across Chicago, Brooks and Kaba created a toolkit to share strategies of resistance to the increased securitization of nonprofit spaces and illuminate the need for organizations and individuals working within them to interrogate policies and procedures with an intersectional lens, develop and learn community accountability practices, and question program values and structures. We hope the strategies outlined in this session inspire, energize, and awaken possibilities towards creating more supportive, healthy, and transformative spaces for young people. And again, this is, uh, you can find it on Eventbrite. It's happening November 5th, uh, which is a Thursday, from 3.30 p.m. to 5.30 p.m. Pacific time, and we'll post a link on our website as well. All right, next up. Uh, this is from Resumen, which is uh, Latin American and Third World uh, News. Uh, Oakland, California. City Council passes resolution regarding Cuba and the United States. This was written by Bill Hackwell on October 21st. Yesterday, a resolution supporting medical and scientific collaboration between the city of Oakland, California, and the country of Cuba to address the COVID-19 health crisis was passed unanimously. The resolution also urged the U.S. Congress to remove restrictions on collaboration by suspending economic and travel sanctions against Cuba. City Council member Dan Kelb from District 1, who introduced the resolution, acknowledged during the council meeting that the city had pressing and important issues like homelessness to be focusing on, but that the resolution opening up the possibility of mutually beneficial collaboration with Cuba was important considering the work that, had, that the island nation had, has been doing toward world health. And there's some more information there as well. Again, you can find this at Resumen. That's R-E-S-U-M-E-N. I don't know why I'm talking so fast. 
uh, probably the coffee, and I'm excited. Uh, dash English.org, and also post this on our webpage. Okay, next up, police reform works for the police. And this was an article on medium.com. You can find it at level.medium.com, written by Naomi Murakawa. It came out two days ago. Uh, decades of reform have built an agile, deadly force that pushes millions of people into the largest carceral system in the world. And they say this article is part of Abolition for the People, a series brought to you by a partnership between Kaepernick Publishing and Level, a medium publication for and about the lives of black and brown men. The series, which, co which comprises 30 essays and conversations over four weeks, points to the crucial conclusion that policing and prisons are not solutions for the issues and people the state deems social problems and calls for a future that puts justice and the needs of the community first. I'll read the first paragraph here. Reform the police usually means reward the police. This is the first trap of reform. As a supposed concession to the first wave of Black Lives Matter protests in 2014 through 2016, the Obama administration gave police a gift basket, $43 million for body cameras. Bodies, body cameras have not delivered on early promises to reduce police use of force, but they have expanded police surveillance powers, especially when equipped with facial recognition software. As police patrolled Black Lives Matter protests in 2020, they captured images of protesters by using the very technology that elites promised would contain some of the police powers that had sparked the protest just a few years ago. So uh, I'm going to just scroll down a little bit, and the top highlight from this article is uh, the more police brutalize and kill, the greater their budgets for training, hiring, and hardware. Wow, there's a lot of information here, and again, you can find it levelmedium.com and on weeklyrev.wordpress.com. Okay. Um, moving on to um, protests that are happening in Nigeria, and there's a number of articles, and the one I'm reading from is from freedomnews.org. And there's a few. I've also I'm on Twitter as well. Folks can follow me on there at r o m a n r i m e r. Also been sharing news articles and video footage from there as well. This is from October 23rd. As social movements continue around the world to end the impunity that police forces have, the African continent has seen their biggest movement within the country of Nigeria with the end SARS protests. Nigeria has the largest population on the continent and the largest population of young people has taken to the streets to protest the torture and brutality Nigerians are facing at the hands of police. The Nigerian government has at least acknowledged some of the problems. However, the protests have turned toward social change demands, with citizens calling for more anti-corruption crackdowns in the government and social and structural changes nationwide. In 2017, Nigerian activists launched a campaign to end human rights violations committed by SARS, SARS the Special Anti-Robbery Squad, a unit of the Nigerian police responsible for the investigation of crimes such as robbery and kidnapping. SARS had been created in 1992 to fight an increase in armed robbery and crime. Over the years, video evidence has appeared on social media showing unlawful arrests and other abuses. In 2017, when the campaign hashtag end SARS was launched, footage was shared allegedly showing the aftermath of the police killing a young man. The internet began to fill with horror stories of young people who had suffered human rights violations at the hands of SARS. At the time, in 2017, uh, the police authorities made it known that they would reform SARS. Among the police amendments was the passage of the 2017 Anti-Torture Act and the signing of the New Police Act. 
However, there was reportedly no enforcement. For example, in Amnesty International report, Nigeria, time to end impunity and other violations by special anti-robbery squad, details at least 82 incidents of torture and other gross human rights violations between January 2017 and May 2020. Um, and the article goes on, and there's more information there. I've also seen footage of folks uh, in Nigeria had found a warehouse that had um, just tons of food, like so much food um, that was being kept from the people. And folks had broken in and gotten their food that was rightfully theirs. So just a, a small, just like a small note of what's what's happening and it's easy to see that the corruption is worldwide and the police violence is worldwide <sighs> okay <sighs> taking a deep breath okay next up okay and there's quite a few quite a few articles here there is moving along. Um, we're talking about Oakland, and there, uh, fortunately, there was a. <sighs> gonna take a deep breath here. This is from uh, the Tenant and Neighborhood Councils. You can follow them at T A N C Bay. Oakland City Council passed the Encampment Management Policy (EMP) last night, and they tweeted this. Uh, on October 21st, so this would have been passed on October 20th. Under the guise of health and safety, in quotation marks, EMP banishes encampments in 98% of Oakland. Landlords and developers are surely salivating. This policy delivers new powers to push gentrification forward. Make no mistake, EMP is an attack on all tenants. It will become a tool against the tenant movement. This, the criminalization of encampments divides tenants between quote-unquote irresponsible tenants now displaced and quote-unquote responsible tenants who in truth are intimidated into obedience. Homelessness is a cruel weapon for landlords, speculators, and developers. That's because homelessness functions as a threat. Organize and fight back, and you too will be thrown in, onto the street. EMP entrenches this racist weapon by making homeless conditions even more unbearable. Gentrification and slumification will accelerate because of the EMP. Around densely packed encampments, real estate capitalists will have free reign to push up rents, fatten property values, and build more high-rise, or excuse me, high-end dwellings. EMP should be called the Capitalist Management Plan. Oakland City Council's unanimous support for the EMP added new feed into the real estate capital's trough. Once again, our politicians have decided to nourish the very landlords and developers that menace us, tear our cities apart, and make life unbearable. Something must be done. Only we can protect us. Only we tenants organized into a fighting formation and ready to defend ourselves against vicious attacks can ward off the real estate vultures encircling our neighborhoods in the wake of the EMP vote. Let's be ready. And they have a link here to join TANC, which is the Bay's Tenant Union. Ah. <sighs> Goodness. Okay. <sighs> Taking a deep breath here. Okay. And next up, there is an event 
happening on October 29th, which is Thursday, next Thursday from 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. Pacific Time, Community Exchange Call on Squatting and Adverse Possession. This is a Zoom call. And this is to support land liberation and community-driven strategy. We invite you to collaborate with EBPREC in our community exchange calls about this event. We have a Zoom link. And again, we'll share this on our weekly rev webpage. Uh, calling all community developers, co-op entrepreneurs, and aspiring cooperators, co cooperators. Towards the end of the show, I tend to lose my use of language a little bit. Uh, and aspiring cooperators. In this community exchange, visionary organizers Nita B. and Christine Hernandez lead a look at squatting and adverse possession. Anita Diazis Moral, um, a.k.a. Nita B., is a longtime Oakland educator, organizer, activist, and entrepreneur. She is the co-founder of Feed the People and the Village, the owner of Oakland's original Lumpia Lady and the Lumpia Shack, and program director of... Uh, Meikle John Civil Liberties Institute, my apologies if I've mispronounced this, uh, like other hardworking Oaklanders, she cannot find affordable housing that she can qualify for. Oh, these are um, the bios. Okay. And Christine Hernandez is a proud sister of Unite Here International Union, where she learned to strategize, organize, and mobilize. Since moving to the Bay in 2010, she has applied these skills to advance the right to self-determination through her work in job training, food sovereignty, and housing justice. In September of 2015, Christine, emboldened by desperation, took possession of a vacant property in East Oakland to secure housing for her family of six. In June of 2020, their continued fight and struggle for housing culminated into a rent strike and the collective purchase of a seven-unit house with family, friends, neighbors, and the Bay Area Community Land Trust. Christine is dedicated to working in collaboration to create access to housing as a human right. As we move into new ways of building and organizing, our collective leadership will light the way. We hope you can tune in and be part of the conversation. Again, this is happening Thursday, October 29th from 6 to 7 p.m. Pacific time, and it's a Zoom event that we will provide the link for as well. And, okay, I'm running out of time here. Uh, positive story. So, um, breaking. This is from KC Tenants. Breaking. Kansas City Tenants have blockaded the court entrance. Six people have chained the doors. The people have closed court for today. Every eviction is an act of violence. Hashtag end evictions. This was shared on, on Twitter. Again, you can follow them at KC Tenants. And I believe I read folks in Brooklyn as well had done something similar. And... Yes. Okay. I get, okay. Next up, <laughs> here's uh, the Karen Act in San Francisco uh, passed with the Board of Supervisors, and so we'll see if it goes into um, if it gets signed off on. And there's also there's an article in Teen Vogue about it, as well as the Guardian. I'll read a little bit here. Uh, Ca San Francisco's Karen Act, and that's C A R E N, makes placing racist 911 calls a hate crime. City signs legislation giving people right to sue callers after high-profile incidents target people of color for barbecuing, bird watching, and more. I'll read a little bit here. Fed up with white people calling 911 about people of color selling water, bottles, barbecuing, or otherwise going about their lives, San Francisco leaders unanimously approved hate crime legislation giving the targets of those calls the ability to sue the caller. The Board of Supervisors voted Tuesday on the Caution Against Racial and Exploitative Non-Emergencies Act, also known as the Karen legislation. It's a nod to the popular meme using the name Karen to describe an entitled white woman whose actions stem from her privilege, such as using police to target people of color. 
all 11 supervisors signed on to the legislation, despite some criticism that the name is sexist and divisive. Okay. Uh, it comes amid a national reckoning on race driven by the police killings of black Americans, as well as instances where white people called for officers to investigate people of color. There's more information there at theguardian.com. And this article is written, oh, it's uh, from the AP, and it came out on Tuesday, October 20th. All right. That's a hell of a lot of information. And wow. Yes. Okay. Yeah. That's where we're going to wrap up today. Thank you so much for tuning in. Lots of great events happening in the next coming upcoming weeks. Um, really uh, appreciate folks. Uh, thanks for listening. Uh, thanks for all the activists out there. People living their lives. Good things happening. I'm whew, ready to wrap up. All right. So for more information, go to please go to weeklyrev.wordpress.com. We also have a Patreon set up. If you're able to donate anywhere from a dollar a month and more, it helps cover the costs of renting the studio space every month. So thanks again so much for being out there. And uh, let's uh, wrap up with some music. There's a Here's a Joan Baez song. Uh, her singing uh, Joe Hill. And we'll be back next week. Have a great week, everyone.
says I but show you're ten years dead I never died said he I never died said he Are you tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of MutinyRadio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice. LGBTQ-friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. MutinyRadio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-face McRat. <laughs> As the world gets wackier and less predictable in every way, it is more important than ever for us to all remember our roots. We wouldn't be here today if our ancestors hadn't had the capacity and the skills to take care of themselves and their communities using the resources in the natural world around them and their own two hands. My name is Wonia Thibault of Buckskin Revolution and Alone Season 6, and I started Buckskin Revolution not just to empower people with a wider range of skills to meet their basic needs, but also to inspire them with a sense of fulfillment and connection that comes with living a little closer to the earth and using our bodies, our minds, and our very DNA for what they evolved to do to help us thrive without the need for modern technology and industry. If that sounds appealing to you, I hope you'll join me for the Fall 2020 Buckskin Revolution Online Skills Gathering, an eight-week learning experience designed to work within any schedule. It involves pre-recorded classes, live interactive sessions, and online community learning support from both myself and your fellow students. The need for these skills has never been more pressing, and Buckskin Revolution is working hard to bring them to you. I hope you can join us. Get connected with yourself and the world around you at buckskinrevolution.com. Billy Bob, you ever want to be funny? Well, my dogs think I'm funny, Daryl. Well, I mean, you ever want to be, like, in front of an audience, like, other than, like, squirrels, dogs, and dead persons? Well, shoot. From time to time, I've been giving it a thought of two. You know, if you go to Joke Workshop, there's more than two peoples paying attention to your jokes, and they ain't even gonna be jerks about it. Daryl, are you serious? I can get people to listen to my jokes? And they'll even say nice things, dude, before they tell you how to get improvements. No way. What is this dang nabbit thing called? It's Joke Workshop. Joke Workshop? Yep, every Monday, 6 to 8 p.m. on the Mutant Radius. So you're saying I could tell my jokes every Monday from 6 to 8? That's what I'm saying. It's the Joke Workshop Mondays, 6 to 8 p.m. at the Mutant Radius. Yahoo! <laughs> Are the end times upon us? 
Not yet, my friends. Please. This is an impassioned plea from Pam Benjamin, the director of Mutiny Radio. Let us live past October. You think it's a joke? COVID is decimating all of us, and especially us here at Mutiny Radio. We have money left until October 1st. Don't let anyone sing, despite of their size. Please, please go donate to our GoFundMe. Go to mutinyradio.fm and click that GoFundMe button. Or just go to Venmo, Mutiny Radio, all one word. Just Mutiny Radio. Give us five bucks. Help us keep free speech and radical self-expression real and alive here in San Francisco and all over the world. Please donate to our Mutiny Radio. Go fund me and keep us alive in 2020 and beyond. Don't let our world end. I am Italian, and we brought you fascismus with Mussolini, and before that, the Romans. So if you think you live in a fascist country, well, you do. Antitrump.com is the antivirus to the Trump virus. It started in 2016 with two sketches and a dream for a better America. No one thought it would be this bad. He was a 70-year-old yammering nimrod. How bad could it possibly be? We are now in a global pandemic without adequate leadership. Individual politics are not important. We need to rally behind curing the Trump virus. Go to antitrump.com. 